reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Hear these words anew this day. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in, that, in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told the, his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragment, fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. May God give us understanding of these words this day. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. So we all have kind of those, fa those favorite stories in our families. You know, the ones that you share when your family gathers together and, and you hear this word that says, remember when, and you kind of cringe because you know what's coming. Or you may laugh if you're not the one the story is told against. You know, those stories that just repeat over and over again. In our family, it was the day that my Aunt Janet, um, we were sitting around the table and had one of those tiered things with all kinds of snacks and cookies and stuff on it. And she reached across to my mother-in-law to get a cookie. And my mother-in-law said, she, she, you know, excuse me or something like that. And Aunt Janet said to her, well, I have one foot on the floor. And the whole family laughed. And so every time we sat around table, that story was pulled out. And I have to tell you, Aunt Janet was a good sport about it. And there are other stories, that are family stories, that when we're together, we tell those stories. And we laugh or we cringe or we, you know, or we just, you know, it brings something to our lives to have those the gospel story today is one of the stories that's been told over and over and over. You know, it's the story most likely taught in Sunday school, the story of the feeding of, five, of the 5,000. And, you know, if there's 
going to be a vacation Bible school, which um, there's usually a day that they're talking about the feeding of 5,000. That's just part of kind of our, our, our world, the things that we know. This gospel story, though, the feeding of 5,000, is, is unusual because it's in all four gospels. Now, to kind of contrast that, if you think about it, we also have favorite stories that are told just once. So, for example, the story of the Good Samaritan is only told once. Um, the prodigal son, once. Um, the story of the sheep and goats are only, is only told once, but this story is in all four. There's some really differences and similarities to this story in all four Gospels. Um, so this story about five loaves and two fish is in all four. And there's, in the book of Matthew, there's a, a feeding of the 4,000. And so, you know, there's just a mixed review on whether that's the same story told again or if it actually happened twice. But so if, if it is the same story or a very similar story, that's five times. Prodigal son, remember I said, was once. The Good Samaritan was once. So there's some significance about this story that all four, four gospel writers thought was important to bring forward. So each gospel kind of has a different way of telling the story. Um, the general story in all four is the same. There's a huge crowd that gathers. There are only five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus performs this miracle and multiplies the food and everyone is fed. That's the, the kind of the, the line that goes through all of those stories. There's some differences, though, that I think it's important to, to talk about a little bit. Um, if you look at it in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of a nonchalant kind of story. It's not um, put forward as such a huge miracle. Mark just kind of lays it out. It's a story, but it's just kind of the basics. Um, John sees it as one of the signs. Remember, we're going through that sermon series that are the signs of John. And in John, it's a sign and it's important. Um, he, John emphasizes that this event shows that Jesus is, is the Messiah. That very last verse that talk about, talks about this is truly the prophet, the one who has come into the world, is kind of an important thing that John looks at as we're marching through the Gospel of John. John is talking about the divinity of Christ. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? in relationship to God. He is the one that's sent. He is the Messiah. And if you read the Gospel of John from start to finish, you'll see that thread all the way through. So when John tells this story, it definitely is emphasizing the miracle. Um, so if we look at the two accounts, you know, Mark and John, um, the abundance of food is represented differently in Mark, the people are satisfied, whereas in John, the people ate as much of the fish and the bread as they wanted. 
They had as much as they wanted. So kind of that we might think that satisfied is as much as you wanted, or you might see that a little differently. Because in Mark, the people were all satisfied. And John is that the food kept multiplying and multiplying until at the very end, how many baskets did they pick up? Twelve. And what comes before each of these stories makes a difference as well. Um, in John's gospel, what comes before is that Jesus healed the man at the pool that we talked about last week. And then he had a very lengthy, lengthy charged conversation with the authorities. And then, one might guess, weary of that conversation, he goes up in to another place, a quiet place. In Matthew's gospel, and Luke as well, um, there's the story of John the Baptist being beheaded just before um, this story. So Jesus is going up to a quiet place to grieve is kind of what you can infer in that, that difference. Um, and so... I think sometimes it's important to kind of look at all four of those differences and understand that each of these writers is writing from a different perspective. So that timeline, whether it was Jesus went up because he was tired of talking to the authorities or if Jesus went up because he wanted to grieve, aren't as important as the fact that Jesus went somewhere to be quiet. So what I'd like us to kind of think about is why is this story told over and over? What is significant about this story? I believe that this story is told over and over because it captures the truth, the essence of all the people involved, the essential truth about Jesus and the essential truth about the disciples, and an essential truth about God. All of those things are present in this story. So let's go to the story and see if we can kind of coax out some of those things. The setting here is that it's springtime in Israel. The rains of March and April have come and gone. The land was fresh and green, and we can go to that because it was Passover, and they had green grass to sit on in our story this morning. That area wouldn't normally have green grass. The brown hills have soaked up the spring rains, and the flowers were blooming, and the hills were green again. Passover feast was happening. It's kind of, for the, for the Jews in that time, it was kind of like the, like Easter is for us. You travel, you, um, there's a holiday from, from work, a holiday from school. People were taking trips, packing up their donkeys and going on a pilgrimage to Jer Jerusalem. That's what was happening then. It was a time of religious aliveness of fasting and feasting and traveling. You, can, can you get the, kind of the idea of how 
um, how much excitement was in the air because this was an important time for the people there. But if we look at Matthew and Luke that talk about what happened to John the Baptist, we might, might just use our imagination and think that this may have been a grieving time for the people in Israel as well. You know, John to them was this, this moral compass, this person who came and people were, were listening to him and repenting and being baptized. And he had his own set of followers. You know, we often talk about Jesus' disciples, but John had his own disciples as well. This was a time when news of John's death had come to, to the people that were going into Jerusalem that day. The people that were at the temple and the people that were around would have heard that this had happened. So there was a time of grieving. Um, and we hear, you know, that in those two other two books that, that Jesus was grieving as well. And so Jesus took a four-mile boat trip to a, to a more re remote wilderness area. Um, the crowds, though, must have been able to see where he was headed. Because when we think of that, if he was going, you know, in a boat away, he must have been along the shore and people must have had an idea where he was going. Um, I don't think, you know, that, that he said anything about that. He was trying to be alone. And so the crowds followed along the shoreline and, um, and arrived when Jesus did and sometime, and sometime around that time. Um, so Jesus had this plan and then all these people showed up and wanted Jesus to heal them. So what do you think Jesus's response would be to that interruption of his plan? What would your response be to the interruption of that plan? I don't know about you, but when I have something in mind, when I'm tired and I need to rest and my phone rings, I'm not always as patient as I should be. But, but you know, Jesus didn't respond with anger in any of those accounts that we look at. He didn't respond as if he was imposed upon. He looked at this massive crowd with compassion like they were sheep without a shepherd. We, we heard that, we hear that phrase a lot in the gospels. Like people who were in need of spiritual feeding, like people who were lost, who needed something. And it tells us that he taught them and he healed them. The day passed, depending on which account you're looking at, it got later and long into the day, and one of the disciples says, Lord, the hour is late, the people don't have any food, and we are a long way from any village. Maybe, just maybe, you should send them away now so they can go have dinner. And I'm wondering if that disciple might have been a little bit hungry, too. And it's at that point, in verse 5, that Jesus turns to Philip. Now, you might ask, why Philip? 
And why is Philip named? Philip was from one of the nearby towns um, in Bethsaida. Jesus was Jesus asking Philip um, is sort of like when you're visiting a town and you ask someone from that area, where should we get something to eat? So when Philip came up and said, what should we do? Then that whole conversation happened. Jesus, though, wasn't asking where Jesus could go and buy the bread for himself. He asked where they, Jesus and his disciples, it was kind of a collaborative thing, where they could go and buy bread for this huge crowd of 5,000 plus people. And Philip blurts out that it would take over 200 denarii, roughly about six to eight months wages, and everyone would have a taste and not their fill. It would be a little bit for each person if you did that. Okay, so I ask you, how would you feed 5,000 men, women, and children plus? Because when we add in the women and children, we're talking at the very least about 8,000 people. How have you ever fed that many people? I know I haven't. The, kind of that enormity kind of boggles the mind. Just that much food all in one place and also the money it would take to, to feed them. So I did kind of this experiment. I looked at if you were to feed rice and beans plus a roll, you need paper plates and you would need cups and you need plasticware. The cost would be about $3 per person. If there were 8,000 people, can you do the math? How does $24,000 sound? Oh, and the cooks wouldn't get paid in my, in my little plan here. So then as I kind of laid out, out this story, you know, in front of me, you guys would kind of laugh if you ever saw me in my sermon prep. I have papers everywhere. I have my computer on my lap. I have my iPad to my side, one side, my phone on the other, because I'm always looking things up. And as I looked at everything I had out there, there was a thought that might not be a popular thought that occurred to me as I looked at this story and I looked at all those things. Verse 5 through 7 is a reminder to me that the claim that we hear so much that God won't give you more than you can handle is not exactly true. Oh dear. Because right here, Jesus has given Philip a task that is too big for him. Have you ever thought about that? 
Jesus asked Philip to do something that afternoon that Philip knows he cannot accomplish unless he works for six or eight months. If Philip worked hard for six or eight months, he could not even have enough money to feed everyone in the crowd that is in front of him. And Jesus has asked him to do it right there on the spot that afternoon. I often wonder about that little verse that's in this text in um, verse 6 that, that Jesus is testing Philip. Testing Philip by giving him too much to do? To give Philip more than he can handle? That's kind of a scary thought. Is he giving Philip an impossible task? Is that the point? But then the next thing that Jesus says gives me hope. He says, look around the crowd and see what you find. This task that's beyond what Philip can do, it's beyond Philip's strength and ability to look around and see what you find. So Philip is kind of doing that, but you know, it's Andrew in our Gospel of John account. It's Andrew who begins to show the way. In verse 9, Andrew shows up and says to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Philip sees a scarcity of resources. Andrew also sees a scarcity just by as clearly as Philip, but it's Andrew who brings what little resources they have to Jesus. Five loaves of bread, about the size of dinner rolls, and two fish. There's this boy that has them. Small rolls and fish were the food of the poor. Barley loaves were what the poor ate. Wheat was for those who had resources and means. Barley was just the common everyday thing. So these, these rolls that people would, would use when they would have a communal meal or have a bowl. They didn't have utensils. They didn't have spoons or forks or those kinds of things. They would use these rolls, tear off a piece, dip up whatever food was in their, their dish, and they would eat it that way. They would take, it with the fish were usually salted or dried or something, and they would take the fish and put it on the bread, and that's what they would eat. That was their utensils because the poor didn't have anything but what they carried with them usually. And so this was, this was the poor man's dinner. And wheat was the rich man's luxury. Such an interesting thing to think about because this is a miracle as we have learned to do it, but instead of 
something grandiose and beautiful, maybe wheat rolls for everybody and a banquet. It's an everyday lunch. It's what everyone who is following Jesus would eat. One commentator that I looked at writes that Philip doesn't know what to do. Andrew really didn't either, but he brings the boy. Um, and this commentator says that this connection with kind of our world is that often when we're faced with the needs around us, we don't really know what to do. We may not have enough to make a difference to everyone. Laura, I think you'd agree with me on that, that we don't often have enough to take care of everyone. Can you see where I'm going with this, though? Jesus took that ordinary thing, and he made it an amazing gift, not just a little bit for a few, but enough for everybody. Jesus invited people to sit on that green grass. He took the, the five loaves and two fish. And I have to tell you, when I was looking at what to put on our communion table this morning, um, I found a loaf of bread back there that might have been sitting there for a while because I really had a hard time breaking it. And I put it here. And then I thought, well, what do we have that would be kind of an ordinary fish for everybody? And so I have two cans of tuna. So we have bread and tuna to remind us of the ordinary gift that Jesus made extraordinary. It seems to me that much of what we've talked about in the Gospel of John is just that. That things that, are, that we would think are ordinary, can be made extraordinary. Remember the wedding at Canaan. What did they make the wine? What did Jesus make the wine out of? Water. In the cleaning of the temple, it was to take those who were benefiting from the sale of things out of the temple and make it back to the heart of, of worship and the heart of what's going on, the ordinary, um, the everyday thing. The The when we talked about the man at the pool going into the water that was stirred up, it wasn't that, um, that it was kind of an extraordinary thing. Jesus just told him to take up his mat, the mat that he'd laid on for 38 years, and walk. Pretty amazing stuff. So he looked up, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And there were some left over. Now, it could have still been a miracle if there weren't anything left over. But the fact that there was enough and more warms my heart. Because it tells me that, that we live in a world that looks at scarcity, but God is a God who looks at abundance. A real difference there. I can't help but 
but wonder, you know, why the disciples did what they did and, and what they were feeling when this happened. I often look, you know, because we can put ourselves in the story. Who are we? Are we Philip? Are we Andrew? Are we someone else? Are we the ones sitting in the, on the grass? Who are we in there? And I like to look at the, the disciples and wonder what they were thinking. You know, were they thinking, you know, total, um, total fear and shock when they were told to give them something to eat or to that they had five loaves and two fish and 5,000 people sat down around them? What were they thinking then? And what were they thinking when they gave out the bread and the fish and it was enough? And what were they thinking when they gave out the bread and fish and it was not only enough, but it was an abundance? What were they thinking? Because here's something I know. I know that often in our world today, we have the idea of scarcity in front of our faces all the time. And we very seldom have in front of us the idea of abundance. Often in our world, the tasks ahead of us, the feeding of the, our houseless neighbors, the getting health care for everybody, all these things that we do, enough food for everybody, seems enormous. And sometimes we, like those disciples, feel inadequate, like we don't have enough. But this story tells us that we don't have to be enough. We don't have to provide everything because the story is, what do you have? The question is, what do you have? And then Jesus takes what we have and makes it an entirely different thing. Um, the other day, I got a phone call from a church that I used to serve as an administrative assistant. I served there for 10 years. And I got a call that said, you know, we have all this food that was given to us by the Elks Club, and we can't use it because it won't fit in our pantry. I heard you have a pantry at your church. Would you come by and pick some up? And I said, when can I come? And so that very same day that I got that call, I went and I picked up that food. And Betty, was there a little bit of food? There was a lot of food. And they said, when, you get, when you're done with this, call us and we'll give you some more. Abundance, when we think we have scarcity, I think that I've told you uh, some things about my mom, but one of the things about my mom, she's 93, by the way, and um, mostly blind at this point, but just still rules the universe. And um, my mom, when I was growing up, always had a pot of soup on the back of the stove. And um, we were always bringing people home with us. You know, they, we, our house was kind of the hangout uh, place. And, um, and other people would come and go, friends or whatever, in that time. And I remember multiple times where mom would have this stew on the back of the stove. We'd have a family show up that, that would be there for dinner time. And mom would add a couple more potatoes or a can of green beans or whatever 
to, to stretch the soup. And, you know, one of, it might be that I'm older and I see things with my um, rose-colored glasses, but I, what I remember is no one ever walked away from my mom's table hungry. That there was always an abundance. And what I remember is that often those potatoes came because our neighbors had an abundant crop. Or in a time when we were quite poor, it was the government issued food that back in the 60s and early 70s was available to poor families and we were one of those poor families. I think that sometimes we need to be reminded that we need each other. That it's not what I have or what you have, it's what we have. I think that, that that is such an important thing to remember. And I'm pretty sure in our life together, in our individual and as a congregation, we hear you give them something to eat. You give them what they need. I, I'm pretty sure that we hear that. And I think that sometimes when we feel secure, we can jump on that that idea and other times we might think well i only have and i think the invitation here is to if we're saying i only have to remember who we are and whose we are and i think in our time together you'll hear me say that a lot remember who you are and whose you are because we have a god that does some math that I can't wrap my mind around. I don't understand how that works, but I just know that often God makes what we have enough. That we get that phone call and said, you know, they gave us all this food and I have no room for it. Will you come get it? Or I see Betty walk in with her bags of things, or I see Bev, or I see Laura, or I see any of the others. I see Martin and Sally. I see other people walk in and we have what we need. So we ask, what do we have? And I challenge you to say enough. We have enough, I am enough. Because I've seen that we have enough. And I've seen that we are enough. I see it in the way our pantry shelves get empty and then fill. I've seen in ways in which on Wednesday morning we make lunches and boxes and boxes of sack lunches go out of that place. I've seen it in the way we love here in this congregation. And it seems to me, and you may hear me remind you of this often, is that if we have, if, if five loaves and two fish can be enough to feed 5,000 plus, then we are enough as well. 
May God give us an understanding that we are and always will be enough. Amen.